Talk Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, it is playoff time for the Cup Series. So naturally, for this podcast, we're going deep on the drivers who did not make it in. A look at what went wrong, and we are going to offer a fix for each of the drivers. Plus, our Vegas preview that, okay, I promise, does include some love for the drivers competing for the title. But first, as always, this is episode 34 of Positive Regression. This is the Wendell Scott edition. Give him hell, Wendell. Wendell Scott, a member of the NASCAR Hall of Fame. One win in the Cup Series, but one enormous legacy in the sport, David, as the only African-American winner in the league's history. Uh, David, I know we don't usually go back this far when, you know, doing starting off the episodes, but this number 34 is by far the most significant 34 in the sport's history. By far. And more than just being the first race winning African-American driver between 1962 and 1966, he owned his own car. He was his own crew chief and he drove uh, and collected 20 top five finishes over that span. And what we know of Wendell Scott, we know of his win. Uh, it actually came in December of 1963, but counted for the 1964 season. He won at the old Jacksonville Speedway Park that year. And the 64 season uh, in total, eight top five finishes. But, you know, Alan, w- what else was happening in 1964? That was the year of the Civil Rights Act. And it was the year before the Voting Act was put into place. For you and me as white males, you and I can't possibly comprehend all the hell Wendell Scott went through solely and exclusively because of the color of his skin, just while touring the South in order to do his job. And that makes what he endured and what he accomplished all the more remarkable. And from a competitive standpoint, let's consider what was happening on the racetrack in 1964. There was a big three then. Alan. <laughs> yeah, Richard, I can name a few. <laughs> Richard Petty, David Pearson, and Ned Jarrett. Yep, yep. Have you ever heard of those guys? They combined <laughs> for 32 victories that season. And and Fred Lorenzen, Fred Lorenzen gets slept on almost more than any driver in NASCAR history. He won eight times that year while only competing in 16 races. Uh, this was the beginning of NASCAR's talent stack. And here was Wendell Scott in his own car and acting as his own crew chief, holding his own. And and I've looked up his results that year. He had 22 DNFs in 56 starts, most of them mechanical. Uh, all in, he had a 12.9 place average finish. And with the DNFs omitted, 8.6. Wow. And and look, it's it's very difficult to compare eras. Uh, if we had to argue right now, 2019 is the most competitive we've ever seen NASCAR. But a single digit average finish when everything breaks according to plan, that's pretty special. Uh, and, and special is the word that comes to mind for me, uh, for Wendell Scott. Yeah, and look, obviously a different era, someone we never got to see run, obviously in person, uh, you know, being the age that we are. But uh, my favorite thing about this is listening to other drivers. You know, I will always obviously uh, take their opinion and weigh it heavily. And when you hear drivers like Richard Petty, Ned Jarrett, even Daryl Waltrip has mentioned what Wendell Scott and his family used to do at the track with the equipment that they had, uh, you hear and you learn of a driver doing a lot with a little, you know, in terms of uh, both the equipment that he had, the, the stuff that he was working with, the backing that he probably did not have, never mind all the societal issues going on and just showing up to the track and getting in there, what kind of um, mess and what kind of life that was going, as you said, traveling the South. But when, you know, today uh, I mean, we celebrate drivers, right? Those are the best stories. The driver's doing a lot with a little. That's the impression that I get of Wendell Scott and the kind of driver he was outperforming his equipment and really doing it himself. That That's the kind of story we would root for today. And that's what was going on in the 60s. Episode 34 of Positive Regression, the Wendell Scott edition. Getting to the meat of the episode, David, it is the playoffs. It is the cup playoffs. Uh, now that we have 
ended Indy, and now that Ryan Newman is in, guys like Daniel Suarez are out. The field of 16 set and ready to compete for a title, but we'll talk about the 16 later. Right now, David, what we're going to do is, is talk about some of the drivers who did not make it, some of what they did this year, more of what they didn't, and what we can do to fix it, because that's what we're going to offer our solution, because we are well more than qualified to do that, aren't we, David? <laughs> Uh, I, I certainly hope so. I, and, and I do want to take the opportunity. We'll, we will do this as the, the season progresses, as drivers are eliminated from playoff contention. I want to take a step back, measure what each driver and team accomplished during the season, but offer a small preview of sorts for the 2020 season, maybe a fix, a suggestion, just a a tweak from where we sit to improve their lot because, and I don't think we're being critical, if if everything went according to plan, these guys would be in the playoffs. Or if the driver's eliminated, if their season was perfect, they'd be the champions. Since it's not perfect, we can probably focus on some areas of improvement. And uh, we've got uh, six drivers that we can go through right now um, that I think uh, we, we might offer some help for. Yeah, let's do it. Let's start right off with uh, the most significant. He didn't miss it by one spot, but this is the driver we're all talking about. Jimmy Johnson, Mr. Seven-Time, missing the playoffs for the first time in his history and in the playoffs history, frankly. So uh, start us off, David. I mean, give us a little idea of the season and what went wrong and maybe a fix for seven-time. Yeah, and the fix may have already occurred with the crew chief change, but... Alan, we think of many differences between auto racing and other sports. And one of those differences is that teams in stick and ball sports seem more willing to admit that a teardown and rebuild is occurring. Usually that's to appease season ticket holders, you know, gunning after that lottery pick. But we don't hear much of that in NASCAR. Usually, This happens when a superstar leaves for greener pastures, but in this case, the number 48 team, Jimmy Johnson didn't leave. He just hit his decline, and what he does behind the wheel of a race car is still good. He ranks 16th this season in pier and occasionally has days where he's an efficient passer, but being the 16th best driver is not the Jimmy Johnson we saw five to 10 years ago. It's almost as if the 48 team has a new driver whose abilities are different, more limited, and the team built around him is still learning about this new driver. If I may, I believe Kevin Mendering, hired before this season, represented business as usual, just keeping things together, keeping the ball rolling uh, on the team built by both Jimmy Johnson and Chad Knauss. Cliff Daniels, who recently replaced Mendering, is, in my eyes, Hendrick's admission that they are having to rebuild. And that is the fix here, I think. A back-to-basics approach that could potentially prolong Johnson's career He won't ever be the driver he previously was, but he could be different and good, and that could offer something good for the 48 team. He might very well contend for the playoffs again, but if that were to happen, it probably would be because Daniels has put his spin on the cars coming from that shop. I know there's a bit of recency bias, and Darian Grubb, Hendrick's technical director, fell for it. Uh, evident in the post-race interview at Darlington. But Johnson's recent crashing that we've seen across the last three weeks was not indicative of his season. His crash frequency is right now its lowest since 2013. If Johnson can reestablish himself as a steady hand who doesn't make mistakes, and I think that's a realistic goal, then that is the metronome around which Cliff Daniels can build. And Alan, I like that there are now 10 races with no pressure whatsoever for Daniels, uh, who has experience as an engineer, but he's never called his own race prior to taking over the reins uh, of the 48 team. For the next three months, stage points don't matter. Daniels can call straightforward races, will have a better grasp on some of the calls he makes, and collectively will know 
where this program is likely heading. But from the sounds of things, Daniels wasn't pressed too much about getting Johnson into the playoffs. And for him, for for Cliff Daniels' career as a crew chief, that could be a blessing in disguise because it allows him a chance to learn without any immediate expectation placed before him. So from where it sits now, going into the 2020 season, I think this is a teardown. This is a rebuild. And they are trying to build this team around what is a new look Jimmy Johnson? You tell me if I'm putting it too simply, but I look at the central speed rankings and he has the 16th fastest car. The 48 team was the 16th fastest car so far this season. And as you said, right now in peer production equal equipment rating, he is the 16th best driver. In years past, is it safe to say he would outperform? His peer would be much higher than where his his speed ranked, if you will. I mean, those numbers would be off a little bit in terms of what he could produce for the a car that wasn't maybe as fast. Yeah, and he was used to having the best car. But he also got a lot out of his race car, and he got a lot out of it this year. I mean, there were times we remember that first Martinsville race. Jimmy Johnson was a lap down. I think it, it felt like 50 seconds after the green flag <laughs> dropped. It was, it was just, it was strange. Um, so this wasn't, the season we expected from Johnson. This wasn't the season we expected from that 48 team. We anticipate that they would be more buttoned up than this because after all, it's Hendrick Motorsports, right? They're supposedly the New York Yankees of NASCAR, but it sure didn't look like it at times. And I think what Cliff Daniels offers Johnson going forward is something new, just a different approach to things as Johnson enters the winter of his career. I've already seen on social media today saying that he's indicated he wants more years behind the wheel. We'll see about that. But if that were true, then they're going to have to build around the Johnson he is now and not try to keep going uh, a team built around the Johnson that we previously knew that is never again walking through that door. Interesting stuff. He can't, we can offer a fix, but we, unfortunately we cannot offer a time machine, but we'll see what Jimmy Johnson and crew can do in the next 10 races. Next up on the list, the driver that just missed it. David Daniel Suarez was straight up going into the brickyard with Ryan Newman and just had to outperform essentially one driver. And uh, he could not, unfortunately for Daniel Suarez and 41 fans, uh, came up short of the brickyard. He ended the regular season with three top fives, nine top tens, but he only crashed twice. His only two finishes, David, worse than 25th, were both at Daytona. So what I'm getting at when I see that and I look at his statistics, that that he only has two real you know, awful finishes, and yet he was kind of just, I don't know, mediocre. That, that, that tells me the rest of the season was just consistently mediocre. And and that's not really going to get it done in this era of stage racing. And I looked at his restart numbers. So if I were to offer him a fix, I would say his restart ability needs to get better because he ranks toward the bottom on preferred groove restarts and non-preferred groove restarts. And in the stage era of racing, when we have more restarts than, than not, if you will, the ability to get those positions and not be mediocre when you have a potentially faster car, I think that's what you can look back on sometimes and see that you should have had better finishes and those could have come by improving your restart abilities. That was that would be the offer I would uh, that would be the fix I would offer to Daniel Suarez, David. You know what's interesting about that? He was in the Xfinity series for two seasons. And in his first year in a Joe Gibbs racing car. The biggest critique about him was his poor restarts. And in his second season, as he got better, more acquainted with his team, understood the competition within the series, the second half of that season, the restarts very quietly became uh, a non-issue. And if you recall, he went into Homestead. He was one of the championship four. Mm -hmm. Do you remember how he won that race? Yes, Cole Witt lined up with no tires and a backmarker car on the front row. Yeah, it was a late race restart. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, but. so it did come full circle. That's that's to say that we have seen improvement from him before. Now, the Xfinity series is not the Cup series. I think we've established that here. A little bit harder. It's a different restart dynamic that he's experiencing. And it was a different restart dynamic for everybody this year. So fair to say... It was going to be a pretty tough learning curve. Now, I, I will say this. I was 
pretty harsh on his crew chief, Billy Scott, last year didn't do Kurt Busch very well in regards to green flag pick cycle strategy, um, was not picking up positions in those scenarios. This year, he fed Daniel Suarez pretty well. They retained uh, position 65% of the time, 23 spots gained on normal tracks. And that wasn't anything that Suarez had in his two seasons at Joe Gibbs Racing. So, He's getting a lot of support, perhaps more support uh, than he's ever had from a track position standpoint. And I know that sounds strange coming from a driver who was at Joe Gibbs Racing, but if you look at the numbers, it's true. So there seems to be a conscious effort to supplement what he doesn't do very well. But you're right, Alan, for for him to improve the, the biggest area is going to be restarts, those short runs, those windows where the majority of positions change. If uh, if he's eating it on uh, on those windows, then it's going to be a, another tough season. So that's what he's going to have to spend these next 10 races and his entire offseason figuring out. Yeah, just perspective. Preferred groove restart retention for Daniel Suarez this season. 44 attempts. He retained 70.45% of the time. Just to give you some perspective, I think the best below average, below average. Yeah. To give you perspective, the best in terms of the regulars, Martin Truex with 88.14, big disparity there. So certainly room for improvement. And when you just miss out by a few positions and points at the end of the season, you have to look back at, at what could have been done on some of those restarts for Daniel Suarez. Next up, let's see, we've covered Jimmy Johnson, Daniel Suarez, Ricky Stenhouse, David. Tell me about Ricky Stenhouse, because uh, as we were preparing the show, I asked you, you know, looking at the season, is he getting better or worse in terms of, you know, statistical numbers, in terms of the performance he's putting out there? Where is Ricky Stenhouse right now? Not in the playoffs, we know, but where, what is the trajectory at the moment? Well, the trajectory is he's getting older and he's still crashing, but before before I get to that, I, I I do want to compliment him because this team does have a discernible strength. They ranked tenth in central speed on moderate one point five mile tracks, and they finished sixth, eleventh, twelfth, and twelfth in those races. And I say that to say this: the seventeen team ranks eighteenth right now in central speed. That's where they ended the regular season. Roush Fenway Racing driver Ryan Newman ranked 22nd, and it was Newman, not Stenhouse, who made the playoffs for Roush Fenway. Had Newman not made the playoffs, I believe Stenhouse's season would have been accepted as the most recent barometer of where Roush Fenway is as an organization. But Newman did make the playoffs, changing what we believe to be possible for Roush Fenway now forcing us to scrutinize Stenhouse and this team a little more than we would have. On behalf of Ryan Newman, crew chief Scott Graves tallied stage points in scenarios that uh, could have gone either way when green flag pit cycles coalesced with the ends of stages. Brian Patty, Ricky Stenhouse's crew chief, did not do this. Uh, Just for a frame of reference, Graves earned Newman 41 positions in these toss-up scenarios. Patty only earned a Stenhouse three spots. Hmm. I have praised some of Patty's work as a strategist on this very podcast, but because Newman made the playoffs with Roush equipment, Patty's decisions could be under fire. He could lose his job. and that, I mean, that is the very profile of a crew chief who might be replaced. But if that were to happen, I don't think that addresses the main issue with this team, which is, and this brings us back to, Ricky Stenhouse is crashing. He crashes more than any driver in the NASCAR Cup Series by a considerable margin. And this has been the case for the last few seasons. Newman made the playoffs in part because whenever he was handed track position, he didn't fumble it. He crashed only twice during the regular season. Stenhouse crashed 17 times which is the most of any driver in the series. And look, I, I know Kyle Larson is a crasher. He's crashed 14 times this season, which is high, but Larson has a much faster car. And by a number of measures, he's a better driver than Stenhouse. He can get away with crashing at the rate that he does. Stenhouse cannot. 
He has speed that falls on the playoff borderline. When that's all the speed a driver has, crashing at this rate is a season killer. And one could argue Stenhouse would have more success if he drove more like Ryan Newman and less like Kyle Larson. And that might be the real fix here. Stenhouse needs to adapt his driving style because his equipment, his team, simply cannot save him from himself. If a crew chief change is made, fine, but that to me does not remedy the thing that is halting this team's progress. Ryan Newman went out this season and proved that it's possible to bring Roush Fenway racing to the playoffs. That means we're looking at Ricky Stenhouse differently than we would have. Interesting and a great point when you have uh, almost direct comparison right on the other side of the shop. Uh, We'll start looking at the other team differently now that we can do that. All right, next up, Austin Dillon. Austin Dillon not in the playoffs. Uh, No top fives so far this season, just four top tens. And David, the fix for me, what I would give is that he needs to pass better. You at Motorsports Analytics, you have a um, a stat or um, a category, if you will, that measures one's ability to pass. It's called surplus passing value. Uh, a car's ability, what you would expect it to be on the racetrack, and kind of what the driver can deliver. I'll let you go into it a little more. But David, other than Landon Castle, Austin Dillon has the worst surplus passing value amongst Cub regulars on the season, minus 3.72%. He is passing fewer cars than his car is capable of. Put that in perspective for us. That'll do it. That'll take you right out of playoff contention. But his car is potentially better than what he offers. Uh, They are ranked 19th in central speed. That that's good enough to make the playoffs, but it would require that the driver does some heavy lifting and that's going to have to come either passes on restarts, passes on long runs. That could be an initial track position and that can mean just scoring finishes when you're handed track position. Look, we, we keep talking about Ryan Newman, but Ryan Newman was a driver who was handed track position and didn't let go of it. And when you have a surplus passing value this bad, there's only so much a team can do. And this is becoming trickier and trickier for Austin Dillon because next year he's going to turn 30 years old. And at this point in his career, he has never had an above average production rating for his age. Now, we know the situation here. His grandfather owns the program. It's not likely that he's going anywhere if he isn't calling the shots. So he's here to stay. RCR has to figure out a way to build a competitive program around him. And I'm I'm with you. The onus falls on the driver to get this done. You, You have to be able to complete those passes or not get past. Just hold on to the position that you're given. RCR, traditionally, some of the most aggressive pit strategists in the sport come from Welcome North Carolina, and they are handing their drivers that track position. We think of Luke Lambert. We think of Justin Alexander a year ago. Uh, That's what they do. He is put into position to succeed. Uh, He just needs to hold on to his track position with a death grip. Death grip. I like that. Next up, Chris Buescher kind of opening eyes uh, in the, the, what, the second half or the middle third of of the regular season. Just lately, it it seems like he is one of those drivers, and I'm sure you can give us some perspective, just outperforming his equipment or maybe just uh, setting new expectations of where we should expect Chris Buescher to be running. This was... I don't know, a pretty revelatory season for JTG Doherty as a whole, I think. Uh, This was their first season driving cars built in-house, which is a risky pursuit. I think they pulled it off very well. Assuming that year two fares better for them on that, the fix here is to further enhance their effort on the moderate 1.5 mile tracks. And I believe that this is actually currently their strength. So so I'm 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 saying make their strength stronger. They're ranked 19th in central speed on the moderate mile and a halfs. Um 
this was, I, I think of Kansas, they had the 10th fastest card there. They have fast cars here and there. 10th, uh, 10th fastest car at Bristol, 15th fastest car at Michigan. I'm saying consolidated. Focus on one track type. And it would be quite an effort to build up speed in that regard. But I don't buy that Chris Busher can't do for JTG what Alex Bowman has done at places like Kansas and Chicago land. Busher is the better producer of the two, after all. Now it is a matter of continuing to improve the car. And as we've discussed previously, improving a car, improving a program like that, that is a slow burn process. So my suggestion, my fix would just to be not to deviate from that, but maybe home in on one track type where they can get some results to pop. And lest we forget the crew chief of this team, <laughs> Trent Owens, during green flag pick cycles this season, has gained Busher 67 positions at non-drafting ovals. Uh, all the while, Busher established himself as an excellent restarter from the non-preferred groove. So we knew that about Trent Owens coming into the season, but Chris Busher was the revelation for me this year and that this is a, a driver and a team that can go far, that can ultimately be a fringe playoff contender just with some small improvement. And I think that's just keeping the ball rolling on improving your your cars and your setups coming out of your shop. A little perspective for the listeners. Pound for pound, the 37 is the 21st fastest car on the track this season. Okay, follow me there. Chris Busher has not finished worse than 20th. You have to go almost back to April. May 6th in Dover was the last time he finished 20th or worse. He finished 23rd that day. Since then, since May 6th in Dover, he has finished in the top 20 with what pound for pound is the 21st fastest car out there on the racetrack. If that doesn't tell you the story of his year and the story of at least a little something about the driver, I don't know what does. That's pretty strong. And, and also you're getting into Chris Buescher, still a young guy, 26 years old. Uh, his crash rate relatively clean, uh, 0.17 times per race. He's put himself in a scenario where he can he can have a career. And what I mean by that is he can be a winning driver and regularly competing for playoff spots. Per surplus passing value, he is a top 10 passer. So look, if you have Owens feeding him track position and you have Busher keeping his track position and moving forward, you're going to shoot well past your central speed ranking and get those kinds of finishes. Without a doubt, this was a seminal season for JTG Doherty Racing. I'd like to see them uh, continue improving because I want to see another team in the mix in the playoff hunt in 2020. Good stuff. Looking forward to 2020 and that team and uh, the the constant improvement that we may see from a Chris Busher. Uh, finally, the man in the news this week because he got a new job. Matt DiBenedetto will have someplace else to go in 2020, the Wood Brothers and the Team Penske um, alliance over there. But let's look at what he did and what he did not do in 2019 with Levine Family Racing. Uh, David, for, to me anyway, for Matt DiBenedetto, this was clearly a, a tale of two different half seasons if you are Matt DiBenedetto and or a fan of the 95. Listen to this, David. Daytona to Chicago, the Daytona 500 to the Chicago race. Matt DiBenedetto had seven finishes of 25th or worse. We go back to Daytona in the summer until now, the end of the regular season. His worst finish was 20th, not even 25th. His worst finish since Daytona in July was 20th. No finishes 25th or worse. And I can tell you, I remember that Michigan race. Uh, he went into that weekend knowing they wouldn't even have much to go with. So that was their worst weekend. So again, Daytona at the beginning of the season, Chicago, seven bad finishes of 25th or worse. Go back there in July until now. His worst finish since then, 20th. To me, I don't know if that's a sign of a slow start over at Levine Family Racing, a team trying to work out its new alliance, its new cars, its new people, crew chief, driver, all that sort of stuff. And then it finally coming together once we hit the summer. I don't know what the exact story is. Maybe you can shed some insight into it, David. But to me, I just think that things are going right there right now. I don't know exactly what to fix with the driver because 
once it all came together, he is performing on his end. What I think they just need some consistency over at Levine Family Racing. That that was an interesting uh, to way, way to end that thought because <laughs> Christopher Bell is an exceptional talent. Uh, we have seen him make mistakes. We have seen him be accident prone in years past. In regards to LFR, there there is going to be a learning curve with their driver. I think it's fair to expect the car to be a little more in line with its Joe Gibbs Racing brethren. But in regards to De Benedetto. We learned a lot about him this year. Uh, he ranked 17th in peer right now. That is ahead of Chris Busher, Ricky Stenhouse, and Austin Dillon, who we already talked about. That's a, He has a better rating than Paul Menard, the driver he is replacing. If you're Wood Brothers Racing, you feel pretty good about this because if you had the opportunity to upgrade in every conceivable metric, you would take that, right? Well, that is exactly what is going to happen for them in 2020. And we shall not forget that the Wood Brothers program operates out of Penske Racing. So kudos to Benedetto for finding the back door to Team Penske. He is he's going to have some uh, some firepower underneath him next season where we see all of these strong production numbers uh, in decent peripheral numbers. He's also a top 10 restarter that's going to come to life next year in what was on paper a better car this season. And fair guess, it could actually be better than the LFR car next year as well, even considering the JGR alliance on LFR's part. So we can we separate this into a fix for maybe Matty D and a fix for LFR? What do you say? The potential fix for De Benedetto is that we need to see him do the kind of things that we've seen him do recently every single week. We don't need to be talking about a tale of two seasons for him. He's past that. He's going to be 28 next year. He's approaching uh, age 30, which is typically a production increase. So he's getting there. If we're going to see anything from him as a relevant driver in the history books, we should be seeing it pretty soon. So eliminate the bad races would be his fix. As for LFR, build a program around Chris Bell. Don't worry about the playoffs. Don't worry about the temporary nature that seems to be hanging over this deal. Make it amenable. Bell might not be there in 2021 or 2022, but work on turning this team into a destination. Prior to maybe 2017, this team wasn't that. Nobody was pining to get behind the wheel of an LFR car. De Benedetto helped change that this year. Toyota Support has helped change that. Continue moving that ball further with Chris Bell. And this could be an organization that has a lasting impact in NASCAR beyond just the driver that's going to be in the car next season. Good stuff. And as we said, we will continue this after every uh, round of elimination, looking back on what some of the drivers uh, have done and what they could have done and offer up a fix. We'll continue to do that throughout the playoffs. But now let's go to the drivers that are in the playoffs because the round of 16, the playoff, the race toward the championship starts this weekend in Las Vegas, a triple header out there. But let's focus on what's happening on Sunday in the cup race. David, we have our field of 16 set, but clearly there are some favorites. So let's throw some names out there in terms of who we think the favorites are for this championship. I mean, I think... We have to start obvious, right? Well, let's not beat around the bush. Uh, to me, anyway, Kyle Busch, Kevin Harvick, and Denny Hamlin are three that immediately pop out because of their speed and because of their recent performance. Is that okay? Is that fair? <laughs> you 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 took my three drivers. Uh, I don't know where to go from here. No, no, I'm just kidding. I I think that's, of course, that's the easy answer. Is they've had the speed all season long. Uh, at least Kyle Busch and Kevin Harvick have the extrapolated answer to me would be Hamlin and maybe Kyle Larson. Uh, we've talked about his speed recently. They, they've experienced these recent upticks in speed. You know what we cannot account for are teams who may have saved something for the final 10 weeks. And I think we should get into that in a second, but based on what we know and not what we think will happen, 
Kyle Busch and Kevin Harvick, despite their swoons this season, Harvick in the beginning of the year, uh, Bush during the summer stretch, despite that, they have provable firepower in advance of Sunday's playoff opener. As speed is the most correlative metric to success, their candidacy for championship contention makes sense. For Harvick in particular, he has the fastest car on moderate mile and a half tracks. He stands out for that reason. There are three such tracks in the playoffs, including the championship race. I don't believe the four team had a sluggish start to the season. We talked about that. The cars have always been among the fastest, but their driver is aging. He's also adjusting to a rules package that doesn't suit him very well, but he might have figured things out in just enough time to make a serious bid. What say you, Alan? Uh, I agree with all that. And look, I, I've learned from the David Smith School of Motorsports Analytics. That's half the reason why I hung my hat uh, on the speed rankings, because I believe in them. What we are talking about, where do you put the Penske cars in, of Joey Logano and Brad Keselowski? Because I feel that they are drivers who can win races, drivers who can perform, but we are not putting them on the same pedestal, it seems, at least in my, even in my head. They're, they seem to be on a one, if, you know, if Kyle and Denny and Harvick are on the 1A, the 22 and 2 cars to me are tiers just slightly below only because I look at the speed charts. But then, look, we go back to the first Vegas race, and it's all about winning these things, right, if you want to advance. The, the, the Vegas race earlier this year, it was Joey Logano one, Brad Keselowski two. I mean, they could go out there and win and advance themselves right into the playoffs and certainly be championship contenders. Where do you put the Penske cars in terms of le- legitimate championship contention? Going into race one of the playoffs, I would say you're right on the money. They are a tier below the drivers that we mentioned. And I'm curious as to why, other than speed, is it does their inability to string multiple good races in a row concern you? Because I look at the 22 car, Joey Logano had a good day at Indianapolis, but that hasn't been the case recently across the stretch. It's been good day, bad day, good day, bad day. And his speed uh, shows it across the last five races. His single race average speed ranking is 12.0. And considering his ranking for the year is 8.46, that means he's kind of limping into the playoffs. Now, maybe that would be troublesome, but he was in the same scenario last year. And and then in playoff time, we remember Martinsville and we remember Homestead, but that entirety of the 10 race playoffs, his average single race speed ranking was 6.8. And that was a four position improvement over what he did in in the regular season. That was the second biggest improvement among all teams. And Brad Keselowski's team had a, a similar big improvement. It seems that when we talk about teams saving things for the final 10, last year it was Penske. And we observe last season, we think of the big three, and then we know that Logano one tends to be written off as an aberration but I'm not sure it was because those cars were extraordinarily fast come playoff time. That very well could happen again. And if they if they have the wherewithal to do it last year, they certainly have the wherewithal to do it this year. And you mentioned Vegas. This is a good starting point. Penske cars have won four of the last seven Vegas races. So if uh, if they don't pull it off this weekend, then maybe we'll know that it isn't it is not in the cards this year. But if they look uh, as good as they usually do, expect more of the same. Yeah, and I think this first race will be quite telling. Again, go back. There's only so much we can can learn from the first race, but go back and look at the top, what even ten, but even the top four, the first Vegas race: Joey Logano, Brad Keselowski, Kyle Busch. Kevin Harvick. That was the top four. Denny Hamlin hadn't really come on yet, finished 10th. So it just seems very telling when you go back and look at the first Vegas race and look who we're still talking about now in terms of going for the championship. Maybe there's some correlation there. We could learn a lot and and maybe Sunday will be quite telling. All right. We talked about the, maybe the obvious favorites or the top tier. Anyone going into this playoff that, that could, I don't know if surprise you, but maybe exceed what they have done in the regular season 
and find themselves into Homestead. David, who, throw a name out there. I might be the only member in the media focusing on Eric Almarola, but I want to throw that name out huh. there. Yeah, because if you recall last year, he had an incredible speed improvement. He ended up winning at Talladega. Not that that means anything moving forward, but his car had the fourth biggest speed improvement among all teams in the final 10 races. And he's starting off the playoffs in Las Vegas. Let's look at the spring race. What he did, he was the most efficient passer that day. Alan, a plus 3.9% surplus passing value. Good for a pass differential of 18 positions in his favor. Perfectly accounted for his drive from 25th to 7th. I like when things work out neatly like that because it almost never happens. And I picked on Almarola's passing in a recent article for The Athletic. So I'm happy to highlight when he does get things right. Uh, I swear I'm not a mean person. But I have my eyes on him because going into the playoffs last year, his crew chief, Johnny Klausmeyer, called a great regular season, notched Almarola a lot of positions. You drafted Klaus Meyer and our crew chief draft at the beginning of the season. And during the regular season this year, he's one of the least efficient strategists. I'm wondering if there's a switch that gets flipped uh, this weekend. Do we see 2018 Klaus Meyer all of a sudden calling races for Eric Almarola? And will this car be one of the most competitive among Stuart Haas's uh, three that are in the playoffs? I'm curious. I there's I have a lot of questions, uh, and I I think Al, Almarola is is one to watch. It would certainly surprise me, only because uh, if you're a poker fan, you know the term limping in to a pot, if you will. I look at you know Eric Almarola hasn't had a top ten since Daytona in July, uh, and he's yet he's had his playoff spot secure. For, it seems for a long time, never really in 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 trouble of moving out of the playoff position. So th- that's why. I use the term limping in because he, I mean, he was never really a threat to get out, but he hasn't really been a threat to perform lately. So that's where between the head and the heart, if you will, I would wonder if you, if that concerns you at all, David, that his recent, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight races aren't exactly what you'll want going into a playoff. Yeah. And you know what? Justin Allgaier was talking about this on one of the NBC shows a couple of weeks ago, but it was once once the playoff position is solidified, concern goes away until the playoffs start. Hmm. And I don't know what to believe. Is is that real? Can you just turn it off and then turn it back on come playoff time? I don't know. I mean, now we're getting into a mindset that I'm not sure is even real. But I think that dynamic could also pertain to Almarolo. As you said, their playoff spots never really been in jeopardy. Yeah. They've never been a bubble guy. We've never talked about them as a borderline guy because they've always been comfortably above the cutoff line. And I throw Byron mm-hmm. and maybe even Ryan Blaney in sort of that sort of vortex, right? Where yeah. it's not, you know, top five leading laps, but it's not finishing 27th or worse that we are worried about them. But it's this kind of mid ground that, that makes me just wonder about what's going to happen on Sunday with these with drivers like this who've been in this weird vortex. I think it makes you wonder if there's anything better, if there's anything more to offer, or did they just cruise into the playoffs and that's kind of it. And maybe maybe that is the case for for one of those three that we just mentioned. Um, but for Almarola, look, he has a track record. This team was able to make a significant stride last season. I'm wondering if they can do it again. Yeah. And one name I'll throw out there, Eric Jones, just because what we've seen of him lately, including winning races, uh, we've covered his his rise in terms of the last five races, the rise in central speed, him climbing the ranks. So anytime we talk speed, I look toward that in terms of making a playoff run. David, I'll throw Eric Jones out there. And also Chase Elliott, uh, a Hendrick driver. We're coming around again where we, you know, we lauded the Hendrick teams earlier this season for being really good at tracks like on Chicago and Kansas. And we know Chase Elliott can win uh, at a place like Talladega and probably should have won Martinsville a few years ago. Chase Elliott is a driver who can win races, and winning is the quickest way to Homestead. So I would throw Eric Jones and Chase Elliott out there in terms of drivers who may not be exceeding, you know, uh, lighting the world on fire in terms of wins, laps led, but I would not be surprised to see either of those two drivers at Homestead. That's a fair argument. All right. Well, um, let's see. 
Well, it all starts this Sunday, you know, if, if it's going to get off to a good start. Uh, we have been to Las Vegas one time, as we said earlier this season, with this new rules package. Uh, should be sort of a different race because I think they're predicting temperatures around 100 degrees on Sunday, which may lead us to a little different performance. And certainly teams have evolved since that first race out in Las Vegas. But since we do have that one data point, David, what should we know about restarts for Sunday and the first race of this playoff? Well, now I will preface this by saying it was a caution-free affair in the spring race, if you'll recall. Uh, just three restarts, including the initial start of the race. But we learned that there was a big disparity between the two lanes. The outside was the preferred, retaining 77% of the time across the first seven rows. The inside line retained only 29% of the time. And I've got a fun one for you, Alan. Let's monitor fifth place on Hmm. Las Vegas restarts because things got weird in the spring. Not only did the fifth place car fail to ever retain its spot, but the positional losses were fairly large. Daniel Hemrick lost three spots. Denny Hamlin lost four spots. And Martin Truex lost three spots. Those are three drivers with wildly different proficiency on restarts. So this could be something, could be nothing, but certainly worth watching. Interesting stuff. And in terms of strategy, uh, anything we should be looking for in Las Vegas, whether that be fuel, tires, uh, a caution-free race. Were you able to extrapolate anything from a uh, maybe the, the crew chief's perspective when it went caution-free for an entire race? That's got to be, for a data guy, that's got to be an eye-opener for you. Yeah, no, we did. And we saw effective use of short pitting and long pitting in the spring race, but no significant gains in positions from crew chiefs who utilized either. I will point to Alan Gustafson on behalf of Chase Elliott in that race. He is a conservative pitter the majority of the time. He was a conservative pitter in the spring at Las Vegas. He gained Elliott positions on all three green flag pit stops, seven in total, and all of those stops came when they relinquished a top 10 position. So those are meaningful spots that they gained. What we might see this weekend could reflect what worked best in the spring, which was pitting with the flow of traffic. No no short pit, no long pit, just keeping the window small. Depending on clean air or dirty air, the lap time fall off was a half a second to a second on worn tires. So probably too steep for any team to consider uh, no tires or two tires on a yellow flag stop. I doubt We'll see many gambles taken, but this is the playoffs and uh, it's going to be a slicker track. It's going to be much hotter than it was in the spring. Uh, That could that could throw a wrench in the mix. Good stuff. And something we always do every week. What do we want to see if we had our ideal Sunday to start this playoff on Sunday? What would we like to see? Uh, and again, listeners to positive regression know where I may be going with this. It may be a little bit of a cop out, but it goes back to what makes a good race. We had a whole episode about it and I just want to see a good race. And my definition is always a little bit of parody, a little bit of different storylines. The first race this season at Las Vegas had four different drivers lead 20 or more laps. Uh, both Kevin Harvick and Joey Logano led more than 80 laps in that race. So we had different players at different times, different storylines, different potential winners. I would like to see something like that on Sunday. Give us something to talk about after week one in the playoff. David, that's what I'm looking toward. I would like to see a revelation, a team faster than it was during the regular season or a crew chief strategizing differently than he previously has. Please catch me off guard. <laughs> I think I think one of the curiosities about playoffs in any sport is what, if anything, has been held back. Uh, I look forward to learning that every year, not just in NASCAR, but in the sports I follow, because this sometimes reveals the truth. It reveals the culmination of what's been worked on all season long. I'm glad that we're finally at that point this season. So I want to see what, if anything, has been held back. 
All right, we'll see what happens on Sunday in the playoff opener for the Cup Series. And don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, we are there and we are available. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That helps this podcast gain some visibility. Your help in spreading the word is appreciated. I promise you that is true. So anything you can do, a comment, a rating, tell a friend, Learn a lot about the sport. It only helps. It makes us bigger and better fans. If you have any questions, we would love to answer them on this podcast. We've done it before. So reach out on Twitter at PosRegPod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, it is playoff time and you are busy. What are you working on? This week on The Athletic, we are in playoff preview mode. Uh, I know we will be conducting a playoff roundtable at the end of the week. But before that, I'll post a glance at the different crew chief strategies and preferences for those atop the pit boxes for playoff teams. Think of it as a strategic preview of sorts focused entirely on crew chiefs. I dare you to find anything else like that in the, <laughs> uh, the NASCAR media sphere, folks. So check that out. All right. And if you're listening to this on Thursday, it means you are a subscriber and we love you for that. But make sure you watch Race Up tonight on Thursday because it is media day, playoff media day out in Las Vegas. Race Hub has you covered. I am out there. I will be there in Las Vegas talking to all the playoff drivers. And we will hear from uh, we'll hear from them all on Race Hub and uh, NASCAR on Fox on Twitter and all the social media fears. So spheres. So make sure you check all those out. I talked to Matt D earlier in the week, David, I couldn't believe it. It was my day off. And if you told me I was going to start my day off in the morning and end up at team Penske interviewing new Wood Brothers driver, Matt Benedetto, my head would have exploded. And yet that's what happened. And I was happy to do it because it was good to see him in a ride. So go back, check my Twitter account for that. The truck race is Friday night. Make sure you watch all the coverage throughout the week. The truck race, though, is going to be really good. Remember, it is the playoff cutoff race for the trucks in Las Vegas. Positions three through eight are separated by 18 points. It is going to be an awesome, awesome truck race in Las Vegas, the playoff cutoff race on FS1. So make sure you watch that. It's going to be a full weekend of racing. And just thank you. Thank you for listening to Positive Regression, episode 34. As always, it's a motorsports analytics podcast. We appreciate all the listeners. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. We'll see you back here next week. Coming to bed, hon? Yep, honey, I'll be right there. Just gotta turn out the light. Ow! 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 Ah! Some things never change. Like your kids always leaving tiny toys on the floor for you to step on. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Sweetie, I think I left the downstairs light on. P please don't make me go. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.